we've um, <clears throat> seen the foundational false teaching that was introduced by the early church fathers and developed, um, which impacted on the nature of the church and, and how things were done. And we're going to move on to see now some of the other plants that grew in that seedbed of, of, of this idea that the that the leaders were authoritative of themselves and that basically what they said was what God was saying. <clears throat> we're going to look at various things in the New Testament. And the, the first thing we're going to look at is baptism. We're going to ask a simple question. If you read through the New Testament, how did churches, whilst the apostles were in influence, baptise people? How did it work? Now then, if you go to the Acts of the Apostles... Acts of the Apostles, <clears throat> and if you find chapter 2, and uh, first of all I'm going to read verse 38, Acts chapter 2 and 38, and um, Peter replied, this is the people saying, well, okay, you know, how do, we, how do we get saved? Peter replied, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now down to verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to that, their number that day. Now the thing that I want you to note is that the people who responded and confessed that Jesus was Lord were baptised immediately. Go over to Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> and in verse 12, <clears throat> we have Philip in Samaria. And in verse 12 we read... But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. And then if you go over to verse 36, again notice immediately. Verse 36, Philip is now speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch in his... Cadillac, or whatever they drove then. And it says, As they travelled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptised him. Notice, he was baptised immediately upon confession of faith in Jesus. Why would it be that when he believed what Philip said, he said, right, let's baptise me. It was because Philip had given him baptism as part of becoming a Christian. Philip had told him, repent and be baptised. So immediately he's become a Christian and he's baptised. Let's go to chapter 9 and see when Paul the Apostle became a Christian. <coughs> and verse 17. Now you'll remember, Paul has become a Christian a little bit earlier. This is the first time, though, another believer gets to him. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptised. Go to chapter 10. <clears throat> now this is Peter, gone to the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius with his friends there, these are Gentiles. Peter telling them all about Jesus. Chapter 10, and verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. 
the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What are we seeing here without fail? Immediate baptism. Baptism as soon as possible after confession of faith in Jesus. Go to chapter 16. And this is when Paul's in prison in Philippi. <coughs> chapter 16, verse 30. And this is the jailer. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At, the hour of, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptised. Now, what we're seeing here is that the early church seemed to understand and where would they have got the understanding from well they would have got it from the apostles that when someone became a Christian you baptised them as soon as was earthly possible so we have this very simple repent, believe on Jesus and be baptised that's what the apostles preached that is what the churches did if someone became a Christian they baptised them note you don't even need to do this in the church Philip was on his own with someone who became a believer. He just baptised him. This is what we see in the early church. Now, we're asking the question, if we can establish that under the apostles, the church did things differently from how we do it today, why? How did that come about? And I'm showing you that the answer is the early church fathers. Now then, let's look at Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch again. We're going to look at the same guys we looked at in the last uh, talk. And um, we saw this last time in his letter to Smyrna. Do you remember he said, it is not permitted to baptise independently of the bishop. Now can you see what an incredible shift that is? We have seen that any believer can just baptise a new believer. You just get on with it. You get them baptised. That's what matters. But now we see a shift as early as 110 AD where the prerogative of allowing baptism lies now with the leadership of the church. And not just any old leadership of the church, the bishop, the, the real bigwig at the top of the pile. Now, the pole point was the early church, as we've seen, didn't even have bishops in the way that Ignatius is speaking about them. Bishop was just one of the synonymous terms for one of the co-equal, plural, non-hierarchical male elders who'd been raised up from each church. That's all. He means something entirely different. So again, we see immediately, we're looking at baptism. Baptism has been corrupted by the teaching of the early church fathers. Remember, they taught much that was wonderful and correct. We're looking at where they went wrong. But what went wrong went seriously wrong and it all came to be tributaries that all ran down into this ginormous river of the most awful false teaching. And when you put it all together, the Christian church, as in the days of the apostles, was just completely obliterated. Let's look at Justin Master, uh, Martyr again. Remember, this was the kind of the C.S. Lewis character. He wasn't a priest or a bishop or anything. And he says this, all who accept and believe as true the things taught and said by us and who undertake to have the power to live accordingly are taught to pray and entreat God fasting for the forgiveness of their former sins while we join their prayer and fasting. Then we bring them to a place where there is water where they are regenerated in the same way that we were. This is 150 AD. Now I want you to notice two things. 
firstly, we now have a time lapse. We've already seen how to get the bishop's permission. And now we, we have this time lapse between becoming a Christian and being baptised. And part of what happens in this time lapse is mandatory prayer and fasting. Now, by 150 AD, the New Testaments repent and believe on Jesus and be baptised, which is pretty simple, isn't it? Has now turned into repent, believe on Jesus, then repent over a period of time with prayer and fasting, and then when the bishop gives permission, you get baptised. That's a big difference. Can you see the incredible changes being introduced to the way that new converts were baptised? The second thing I want you to notice, and this is 150 AD. I'll read the last bit again. And he says, we bring them to a place where there is water where they are regenerated in the same way we were. You are no longer born again when you believe on Jesus. You are born again when you're baptised. But when do you get baptised? When the bishop thinks you're ready. So here we have as early as 150 AD baptismal regeneration. You're born again in your baptism, not when you believe in Jesus. Now then, remember, being born again and being baptised were supposed to be really close to each other. You know, they did it immediately. But if you then separate when someone gets born again and gets baptised, question, when, when were they born again? It's when they believe on Jesus. It's not when they're baptised. So baptismal regeneration as early as 150 AD. The simplicity of the New Testament teaching about baptism is getting lost in a morass of extra and anti-biblical. I say anti-biblical because if you're baptising the way the fathers say, you're not baptising the way that Jesus and the apostles said. So the simplicity of New Testament command is getting lost in this plethora of, of practices and teachings that had nothing to do whatsoever with the Word of God. Tertullian. 200 AD speaking of baptism the unwed should be deferred I put off the unwed should be deferred for temptation is waiting for them alike as in the case of the virgins because of their maturity as in the case of the widowed because they are without partners let them wait until they marry or until they are strengthened for continence, here meaning sexual purity, sexual abstinence. <coughs> Those who understand the importance of baptism will rather fear its attainment than its delay. Now what he's saying here is don't let single people get baptised unless you are sure that they are beyond any possibility of ever committing sexual sin. So he's saying, it's okay for married people, but don't baptise single people. Because single people are subject to sexual temptation. So either wait until they're married, or wait until you're sure they're never going to fall sexually. So baptism is now so grave an event, that you must actually be considered beyond sexual sin, for instance, before you can receive it. So now baptism is no longer tied up with beginning the Christian walk. Baptism is tied up with when you're ready and experiencing a certain victory over sin before you get baptised. Isn't this putting the cart before the horse? Let me read more of him. There are sins too ruinous and too serious to receive pardon. Such are murder, idolatry, fraud, denial of Christ, blasphemy, and of course adultery and fornication. Christ will no more intercede for those. He who has been born of God will never commit them. If he has committed them, he will not 
be a son of God. Now what he's saying here is that in baptism, your baptism covers your past sins. Not your future ones. So any sins you've committed before you get baptised, they'll be forgiven. And you'll see why later. But any sins you commit after baptism come into two categories. There are sins that can be forgiven and there are sins that are too ruinous to be forgiven. And indeed, if you committed them, you would just be lost. Indeed, possibly even a sign that you weren't a Christian at all. So what we've got here is that he's saying that Christians, and he talks about murder, idolatry, fraud, denial of Christ... Don't I remember correctly that Peter denied Christ? Well, apparently if you do, that's it. You're dead meat as far as salvation is concerned. And so he's saying Christians will never do these things or if they do, they'll be lost. Now here's the point. It's the bishop who's the one who knows when you're ready. Can you see? All the time man is usurping the place of Jesus. Because they're laying out all these conditions in order for someone to be baptised. But they're all non-verifiable. How can you verify that you'll never sin in a particular way again? Ah, but the bishop. He will know. Because God will show him. So, what we've got here now is you get baptised because you've become a Christian. But you mustn't baptise someone until you know that they're beyond serious sin. We now have a very interesting definition of a Christian. A Christian is someone beyond serious sin. And the bishop will know when you've got there. Now this is daft. I have a lot of sympathy for these dark guys, but now, now we're getting a bit silly, aren't we? Has this guy never heard of King David? Did not King David commit adultery and then arrange to have the husband murdered? Uh, is King David not in heaven? Now we're just getting silly. But sadly... These guys did get silly. Tertullian has some more on this. You tell me if this is getting sillier and sillier. All waters, after the invocation of God, attain the sacramental power of sanctification. The Spirit straightway comes upon them from the heavens and is upon the waters sanctifying them by his own power. And being thus sanctified, they are imbued at the same time with the power of sanctifying. We here have the genesis of the doctrine of holy water. And this is why a priest has to baptise you, because a priest has the authority to invoke the power of God upon the waters. The Spirit comes upon the waters at the invocation of the priest. The Holy Spirit actually has a supernatural effect on these waters. So that when you're baptised in this holy water, it is the water itself that sanctifies and cleanses you. Holy water. Anglican Church, the, the, the kind of higher institutional churches, this is all in there, you know, it's, it's, it's what they still teach. Most of the people in it don't believe it anymore, but it's what they officially still teach. So here we actually now have straight superstition. Do you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of some of the very worst elements in the charismatic movement. The idea that you have someone standing up front who can invoke the Holy Spirit on people. And they kind of, you know, sort of like they invoke the Holy Spirit and then they'll blow on you or something like that. And everyone goes flying all over the room because the Holy Spirit's come upon them. It's completely wrong because it's man controlling God. Man can't control God. And, 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 and here we have the bishop deciding who's ready for baptism. And then when they're baptised, they're cleansed by the actual waters because the priest has invoked the Holy Spirit upon the waters and the waters have become holy. This is now straight superstition. Let me quote from a Cyprian. We're at 250 AD now. Listen to this. A man is not born by imposition of the hand 
when he receives the Holy Spirit, but in baptism. The early church knew when to lay hands on people who had become Christians so that they received the power of baptism of the Holy Spirit. I am eternally grateful that the people amongst whom I came to know the Lord, you know, a few hours after I came to know Jesus uh, and surrendered to him, they laid hands on me and I received the power of the Spirit. And I'm eternally grateful. Uh, I'm slightly less grateful that they didn't tell me anything about baptism <laughs> in water. But, but the point is here, they were still... They still had the truth that there's a time to lay hands on people so that they can be baptised or filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, whatever terminology you like. Now here, here is Cyprian still believing in the Holy Spirit coming upon people and empowering them, but he's saying, look, even, even if someone has believed on Jesus and even if they've had hands laid on them and the Holy Spirit has come on them, they might have spoken in tongues, they might have prophesied even. But he says, but if they haven't been baptised, they're still not born again of the Spirit. This is the most ridiculous mental gymnastics, isn't it? Because of this dogma that's now been established that you're not born again until you're actually baptised. And your being born again is all tied up with the authority of the priest and the Holy Spirit coming upon the waters. C can you see the shenanigans that all this leads to? And uh, he speaks of something else now. Because you have to understand that as with the tradition of the elders, these traditions, what, what I'm calling the traditions of the early church fathers, there's a certain development, there's a certain evolution, there's all the time, you know, kind of like fresh ideas come in that are a logical consequence of what's gone before. And uh, Cyprian here speaks of another innovation that appeared around this time. Listen to this. If remission of sins is granted to even the worst offender... And if no one is shut out from baptism, how much less ought an infant to be shut out? Now, can you see the logic? Anyone here who thinks that infant baptism is even vaguely in the New Testament, let me tell you, there's no scholar who thinks it is. This is where infant baptism came from. Now then, what, what's happened? They've established that because you're baptised by a priest and it's with permission of the bishop, the Holy Spirit is invoked and you're born again because of the supernatural power of the water. And it cleanses you and that's when you're regenerated. So therefore, if you baptise someone, as long as it's done by a priest, that person will be regenerated. Now then, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea to get everyone regenerated? Why don't we baptise infants? It's perfectly logical, isn't it? If it's baptism that regenerates you and not faith in Jesus, well, why, why, why cut anyone out? Let's just baptise people when they're born. And this is where infant baptism comes from. And by another 150 years, I mean, even in regards to, you know, say an infant dying, uh, there was a mad rush to get infants baptised the moment they were born, literally, as they came out of the, out of the womb. Because, I mean, there was a, a phenomenal infant mortality rate. And if a baby died unbaptised, it went to hell. But if it was baptised, it went to heaven. This was all the teaching that developed. So now, here we have infant baptism. So, in effect, we've seen two developments to baptism. All right? We've seen on the one hand the development of the idea that there's some kind of baptismal preparation. And on the other hand we see the idea of baptising little babies. Neither of which are even vaguely in the New Testament where they simply baptise people immediately that they became Christians. So let's highlight the two things here. The Bible doesn't envisage any gap at all between becoming a Christian and being baptised. None. Now, why not? Well, I'll tell you. If you have a preparatory period between someone saying, hey, I, I accept Jesus as Lord, and then baptising them, you have um, a probationary period. And that's the opposite of grace. I mean, when, when you said, Jesus, I put my faith in you, I want you to be my saviour, did he say, well, oh, let's wait and see. He didn't. He saved you there and then. And the church has absolutely no right if somebody says, hey, I've become a Christian. 
The church has no right to question it. And here's the stupidity of it. The stupidity of it. Thinking that you can have a, a period of preparation and that will tell you whether they're genuinely Christian or not is ridiculous. You're supposed to just baptise it. Now then, few take it as, fast as, as far as these guys, fasting and mandatory prayer, and they even introduced exorcism, you know, mandatory exorcism and things like that. But the point is, think how common it is to have baptismal preparation. And the fundamental error is exactly the same. The early church, the New Testament church, when someone confessed Jesus as Lord, they baptised them. Now, I know what you're all thinking. You're all coming out, oh yes, but we have very, very good reasons for baptismal preparation. The Jews had very, very good reasons for the tradition of the elders. The only problem is that these reasons seem to have been lost on Jesus and the apostles, aren't they? I know what you think. You think, well, yeah, but anyone can just say, oh, I've become a Christian. If you baptise them, then later on, if they haven't really, oh, they'll fall away and oh, it's a bad witness and stuff like that. Well, I could buy into that argument if I saw it in the Bible. But it was obviously a complete irrelevance as far as Jesus and the Apostles were concerned. But I'm very glad that there's an example in the Bible of someone who you and I would be very, very pleased to say, oh, I'm just as well you didn't baptise him too quickly. If you go to Acts 8, Acts 8, and let's have a look at a guy called Simon Magus. Acts 8, I'm going to start reading from verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, there you are, being filled, baptised with the Spirit, he offered them money. <laughs> this guy was a kind of an occultist, and he saw that they were more powerful than he was, and he wanted to buy the power of the Spirit. And he said, give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Well, was that where he got converted? I don't know at the end of the day. But we saw, oh, thank heavens, thank heavens, they didn't baptise him too quickly. Just go back to verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and explained, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. Now please notice, the early church did not concern itself over the question of whether or not someone was genuinely born again when they said they follow, you know, wanted to follow Jesus. Because at the end of the day, whether there's any doubt or not, how on earth are you going to know? You can't know. They simply baptised him. They simply, when somebody said, I turn to Jesus. Do you know what the early church did? They did something really radical. They just believed them. They said, okay, let's get you dunked. Because that's what the word baptism means, dunked. Let's dunk you. And they just got on with it. So, why not do it now? I think that is better. I think the way that Jesus and the apostles did it was better than the way we do it today. So, we see that it is erroneous to have a time of preparation, a time of delay between someone being converted and being baptised. Baptise as soon as is humanly possible when someone confesses faith in Jesus. And of course the second thing we've seen is that infant baptism is not based on the Bible in the slightest. Again, it was an innovation introduced as a result of the teaching of the early church fathers. Now then, David Wright, Senior Lecturer in Ecclesiastical History, University of Edinburgh. 
and uh, good old Lion Publishing again, the Lion Handbook of the History of Christianity. And this is uh, the chapter on beginnings in a section on instruction before baptism on page 115. At the birth of the church, converts were baptised with little or no delay. But a course of instruction prior to baptism soon became customary, especially for non-Jewish converts. And then he gives the same quotes um, from Justin Martyr that I did. Hippolytus of Rhone again provides valuable evidence. A convert's occupation and personal relations were scrutinised, and then came pre-baptismal instruction which took three years, even longer in Syria. Good progress or the imminence of persecution could shorten the period. More intensive preparations, including fasting, exorcism and blessing, immediately preceded baptism. The converts were often taught by laymen, such as Justin Martyr in Rome or Oregon in Alexandria. By the 4th century, the clergy had taken over the instruction of converts and the bishop had become personally responsible for the concentrated teaching and discipline immediately before baptism. Here lay the, origin, the origins of Lent. From the 2nd century, baptisms normally took place at Easter. So that's where Lent comes from. It was the period of self-denial that they had for the converts before they were baptised just before Easter. See? Careful preparation for baptism was seen as essential because baptism was commonly thought of as dealing with a person's past corruption but not his future faults. This explains the practice of delaying baptism the development of a system of penitence to cover sins after baptism, and even Tertullian's insistence on purity before baptism, so that baptism became almost a prize. The systematic teaching of new converts along these lines flourished in the 3rd and 4th centuries. As infant baptism became increasingly common, the practice faded. So again, I don't want you to accept any of this from me. Right? It's not my push. This is not just, oh well, that's that funny Englishman's interpretation of things. This is neither my interpretation of the Bible, nor my interpretation of the early church fathers. It is simply a matter of records. And the scholars, no great, it's all there in black and white. So, whether it's infant baptism in some of the more institutionalised churches, Catholic, Anglican, whatever, or whether it's baptism classes in your kind of your lower churches, like the less institutionalised, whichever it is, it's the tradition of the elders. It is not what the Bible teaches. Okay? So, think of it like this. Remember what I'm saying? If you have unbiblical traditions which aren't neutral, they become anti-biblical. And they become anti-biblical because if you do the unbiblical tradition, it pushes out the biblical tradition. And I've said that one of the things that happens is it turns everything on its head. And it turns everything into the opposite of what it ought to be. Because that's what Satan wants to do. Now then, what is the reality of the effect of the tradition of the early church fathers on baptism, I'll tell you, almost universally, Christians either end up baptising when they shouldn't, infants, or they don't baptise when they should, new converts, because they want to put them through baptism classes. I mean, that's what we call the double whammy in England. It's going against the word of God at every level. I'm saying this. Let's do it the way of the Bible. You remember I um, referred to John Drain uh, last time, one of the kind of uh, real big hitters of uh, modern Bible scholars. And uh, in introducing the New Testament, again, published by Lyon, and uh, this is chapter 12 uh, in a section on the institutional church on page 397. This is what he says. Instead of the community of the Spirit that it had originally been, 
the church came to be seen as a vast organisation. What's the opposite of a little extended family? And that's the biblical definition of a church. A vast organisation. See? Go with anti-biblical tradition and you'll get everything the wrong way around. Instead of the community of the spirit that it had originally been, the church came to be seen as a vast organisation. Instead of relying on the spirit's direct guidance, it was controlled by an hierarchy of ordained men. Ordained, you see. These, these guys are priests. They're not plebs anymore. <coughs> Following strict rules and regulations which covered every conceivable aspect of belief and behaviour. Well, does that remind you of the tradition of the elders? Same thing. And when the spirit featured in this scheme... It was taken for granted that what the leaders decided was, was, was what the Spirit was saying. You see, the apostolic succession defined God's will as what the leaders were saying. That's what it was all about. By the middle of the second century, the change was complete. Let me read that again. This guy is a top man in his field. I'm going to read that again. By the middle of the second century, the change was complete. By 150 AD, the Christian church had been changed from being little extended families into a religious organisation governed by an hierarchical priesthood. The scholars know it. At the beginning, the only qualification for membership of the church had been a life changed by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, at the start, there had been no concept of membership at all. Church membership? You find it everywhere. Totally anti-biblical. But by the end of the first century, things were rather different. Now, the key to membership of the church was not found in inspiration by the Spirit but in acceptance of ecclesiastical dogma and discipline. And to make sure that all new members had a good grasp of what that meant, baptism itself was no longer the spontaneous expression of faith in Jesus as it had originally been. Now, it was the culmination of a more or less extended period of formal instruction and teaching about the Christian faith. And in all this, we can see how the life of the Spirit was gradually being squeezed out of the body of Christ to be replaced as the church's driving force by the more predictable, if less exciting, movement of organised ecclesiastical machinery i.e. what he's saying baptism became your entry into church membership but of course before you could be allowed to actually come into membership of a church they had to know that you're not going to rock the boat and that you're going to do what the leaders say so therefore baptismal instruction continued until they were quite happy that you weren't going to rock the boat but that you were going to be a good little Christian taking your place in your good little pew although the pews didn't come in until a couple of hundred years later the whole point is it's the concept of human hierarchy that is destroying the church who's the head of the church now the local church. It's the leaders. It's not Jesus anymore. It's the leaders. And that is where the rot set in. So church membership, cross it off your list. And the idea that baptism is how you join a church. No, baptism is how you join the church universal, the family of God throughout space and time. Baptism isn't how you join a church. You don't join a church like you join a tennis club. But you tell that to most churches today. They disagree. 
let's look at worship. Let's ask the question. So what did churches do when they came together? Was there, was there a particular way they went about meeting? We know they met on the first day of the week. Was there a particular way? Did they go about it the same way? And the answer is yes. There was a universal pattern instigated by the apostles so that the New Testament churches were all fundamentally the same. And one of the things that we see is that when New Testament churches met, and we're going to see later they met in houses, so numbers were always restricted, when churches came together on their, 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 their Lord's Day meeting, if you like, they had time together that no one led. One of the things that's very difficult to get your head round, but it's a fact, New Testament churches did not have church services they didn't even have something that even vaguely looked like a church service. Church services came later. And if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where Paul is dealing with what a church does when it comes together on the Lord's Day, the whole push behind it is this picture of a body with each part of the body moving and being used with no one leading. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul says this, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a revelation, or whatever. Each one has. And the whole push of all his teaching, in 12 and 14, is saying everyone must be free to take part, and you've got to make especially sure that the people who are most hesitant to take part are most helped to take part. And he expects everyone to contribute. No one is leading it. Okay? Now, back to John Drain. Not even a worship leader, indeed. Just hanging out together and as the Lord leads. John Drain again. Again, introducing the New Testament. And this is chapter 22, a section on worship on page 402. In the earliest days... Their worship was spontaneous. Isn't what I'm saying? Well, I am saying it, but all the scholars agree with me. Or rather, I agree with them. It's that way round. Their worship was spontaneous. This seems to have been regarded as the ideal. For when Paul describes how a church meeting should proceed, he depicts a spirit-led participation by many, if not all. There was the fact that anyone had the freedom to participate in such worship. In the ideal situation, when everyone was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this was the perfect expression of Christian freedom. I wonder why John Drain says exactly the same thing that I do. Why is it that if you said, Dr. John Drain, what did the Christians in the apostolic churches do when they got together on the Lord's Day? He would say exactly what I've said. They just had completely open, spontaneous sharing together and prayer, worship, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'll tell you, because he reads the same New Testament that I do. He's got a few brain cells. I haven't got quite as many as him, but I've got enough to know what the Bible says. The scholars do not doubt this. Dr. Henry R. Sefton was lecturing church history at the University of Aberdeen. A lion handbook, The History of Christianity. Good old lion publishing. You can't, you can't beat them. This is a section on acceptance and conquest in an article called Building for Worship on page 151. Worship in the house church had been of an intimate kind in which all present had taken an active part. This changed from being a corporate action of the whole church into a service said by the clergy to which the laity listened. This isn't my interpretation. These are simply the facts. Do you remember Rennick? We saw him last time. Um, the story of the church. Again, chapter 1, entitled The Apostolic Age. And this is on pages 22 and 23. He writes, The very essence of church organisation and Christian life and worship was simplicity. Their worship was free 
and spontaneous under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and had not yet become inflexible through the use of manuals of devotion i.e. liturgy and being led from the front they didn't have services they sat round in someone's front room or facing each other in a circle or whatever and they just shared together they taught each other they prayed they sang worship they spoke in tongues and interpreted they prophesied they prayed for healing they just as the Holy Spirit led them and the scholars all agree that is how the early church met and if you meet otherwise you're not a church like the New Testament churches I don't say you're not a church if you want to define a church as a group of Christians you're a church but it's not like the apostles commanded things to be done I'm simply saying we should do it their way and the church of which I am a part at every point that I'm bringing here to you this is what we do have been for over 10 years now just what the Bible says nothing more now let's look at the other thing that churches did when they came together on the Lord's Day and it'll give us a, a picture of just how different they were to how we were because we've seen time of completely open sharing and worship no one leading from the front you don't know you don't need anyone leading from the front because the Lord's there there are ground rules Paul deals with that you won't know who the elders are you wouldn't guess that unless you got to know the church fairly well an elder might only pop his head up if something really drastic happened because the elders are just one of the guys so just just that and that done or whatever the order is hardly important but the heart of their worship the heart of their day together was the Lord's Supper the Lord's table the love feast they had a meal together the very phrase the Lord's Supper the Greek word is datenon and it means the full meal at the end of the day towards evening they had Sunday dinner together does that remind you of something? families that's what a church is is an extended family they took the Lord's Supper as a full meal so the one loaf and the one cup was part of a meal and it wasn't that the loaf and the bread was the Lord's Supper and the food was a love feast the whole thing was the Lord's Supper the whole thing was the love feast the whole thing was the Lord's table and when you read through Corinthians well it's absolutely clear the Lord's Supper was a full meal that is what Jesus instituted now we've seen from the early church fathers what did they make of this? well we've already seen well they introduced <coughs> services I mean blow the, blow the when you come together each one has I mean authoritarian leadership can't afford to have the plebs taking part can they? so services were introduced instead of what the Bible teaches and then obviously with the services it makes sense junk the meal and then they just kept the bread and the wine so they invented communion services and they were invented they didn't come from the Bible at all and of course what happened we saw up through Cyprian that eventually this Lord's Supper the bread and the wine became the, the, you know, the mass they, they were actually sacrificing the, the body and blood of Jesus again and of course the whole thing when you have false teaching you have a little bit and it will shoot up and it will take off and it will go into orbit until you have got the most terrible anti-biblical wrong teachings now then Canon Leon Morris is principal of Ridley College in Melbourne um, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians for the Tyndale New Testament commentaries uh, this is published by InterVarsity Press uh, General Editor RVG Tasker and in his section on 1 Corinthians 11 he says this 1 Corinthians 11 reveals that at Corinth the Holy Communion was not simply a token meal as with us but an actual meal moreover it seems clear that it was a meal to which each of the participants brought food actually this isn't just my interpretation of the Bible this is what any Bible scholar knows full well the Bible says there's no, there's no getting round this this is a simple matter of history this is what they did all the scholars know it the Lord's Supper was a full meal now then J.G. Simpson 
was, this was a while back, principal of the clergy school in Leeds. And in the Dictionary of the Bible, edited by James, ha James Hastings, under the entry for Eucharist, uh, he refers to the same verses as Leon Morris, and he says this. The name Lord's Supper, though legitimately derived from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20, is not there applied to the sacrament itself, but to the love feast or agape, a meal commemorating the Last Supper and not yet separated from the Eucharist when St Paul wrote. Now let me unpack that for you. What he's saying there is that the sacrament of the bread and the wine appeared after the New Testament canon was closed. Alright? And what he's saying is that this ritual hijacked the names that had originally been given to the meal that they had together. Alright? So he's saying that what happened was that the fathers came along and they junked the meal. The Lord's Supper, uh, the Love Feast, the Agape, all, all these terms, the Lord's Table, referred to the whole meal. The one loaf, the one cup and the whole meal. It was the whole thing. But what he's saying is, in later years, they separated the bread and the wine from the meal. And they got rid of the meal. But they kept the names for the bread and the wine that was previously given to the whole meal. You see. So basically, they brought in a false practice, they threw out the whole meal, they kept the bread and the wine, and then they used the names for it that the Bible used for the whole meal. You see that? The Lord's Supper was a church meal. It was the love feast. The Eucharist was a sacrament that came in later. It replaced the love feast. It replaced the Lord's Supper. But then it took those names for itself. So it just hijacked them completely. And so therefore, it fools people into thinking that because the bread and the wine service is, is used with all these names that come from the Bible, that that's what the Bible's talking about. The early Christians did not have bread and wine services called the Lord's Supper. The early church didn't have any services of any kind. Not even baptism services, because most of the baptisms would have been done when no one else was around. You led your neighbour to the Lord and you took him upstairs and you got him in the bath. Not some big, oh, we're doing our baptisms next month. The early church didn't have services of any kind. So again, this thing, communion services, it doesn't come from the Bible. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. It has to do with the early church fathers who were making all these changes. And of course, the changes they made were accepted because of the doctrine of the apostolic succession because everyone believed that they were as authoritative and divinely inspired as the apostles themselves. The only problem is all this stuff, they're going totally against what the apostles taught. And you're back to the same problem. You can't have two final authorities. Israel had the tradition of the elders and the Old Testament. Which one? The tradition of the elders. The Old Testament got junked. In regards to all these church practices, we've got the New Testament, we've got the early church fathers. Who won? The early church fathers. The New Testament in these areas got junked. It's not what the Bible says that we do. I'm very blessed, my church does. I say, my, the church of which I am part. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> like my wife, uh, the marriage of which I'm part. I'm not saying it's my church. But you see, that's dreadful. In the, you see, I have to qualify that, and I'll tell you why. Because our churches have pastors, and it is their church. And that's, I, I, I can't even use biblical language without having to qualify it, because you, the same with me, have had years and years of false teaching that no one even told us was false. So we have to define everything so very, very carefully. I'm showing you, there's no doubt amongst the minds of the scholars what the Bible says is absolutely clear. Do you remember Donald Guthrie, formerly Vice, uh, Vice Principal of London Bible College? We saw him last time. Again, in the Lion Handbook of the Bible, and his, his section on 1 Corinthians 11, on page 594. In the early days, the Lord's Supper took place in the course of a communal meal. All brought what food they could, and it was shared together. There's no disagreement. 
I. Howard Marshall was formerly Professor of New Testament Exegesis at the University of Aberdeen. I don't know if it's true over here, but in England, this is a seminal work. Every Bible college, every theological college gives you a copy of this book. It's called Christian Beliefs. And in chapter 6, uh, The Christian Community, uh, this is published again by InterVarsity Press. Um, on page 80, he says this, The Lord's Supper was observed by his disciples at first as part of a communal meal, Sunday by Sunday. Hey, I've got a real good idea. Why don't we do it like the early church did? They were closer to Jesus than the apostles. Well, the apostles were closer to Jesus. I really think they're the ones who knew what Jesus wanted. I think they knew best. Don't you? Well, if they don't, we're stuffed. Because the whole of New Testament revelation is based on the apostles being closer to Jesus and knowing exactly what Jesus wanted. They weren't wrong about church, believe me. Back to Dr. John Drain. The New Lion Encyclopedia, published by Lion. And in a section on the Lord's Supper, he writes, this is page 173, and Dr. John Drain, certainly in England, but he's universe, he's over here as well, he, he is one of the leading modern popularizers of Bible teaching. You know, I mean, he's a top man. He, he writes for all the, you know, the Lion Handbook of the Bible. Absolute top man in his field. Marvellous. Um, institutional church man. <laughs> See? But listen to this. Jesus instituted this common meal at Passover time. At the Last Supper shared with his disciples before his death. The Lord's Supper looks back to the death of Jesus. And it looks forward to the time when he will come back again. Throughout the New Testament period, the Lord's Supper was an actual meal shared in the homes of Christians. It was only much later that the Lord's Supper was moved to a special building and Christian prayers and praises that had developed from the synagogue services and other sources were added to create a grand ceremony. See, all the changes came after the apostles. What we're seeing is what the New Testament church was as set up by the apostles before these changes happened, after the apostles died. But are you seeing something here about the church? Because one of the things that you'll find, and this was my experience for many years as a Christian, and I think probably it's yours as well, that we have a deep down in our heart idea of what the nature of the church is. It's kind of embedded in our hearts. Way deep down, because the Holy Spirit's put it there. But we can never fit it together with what our experience of church is. And I'll tell you why that is. Because what the Holy Spirit has put way deep down in your heart about church, this kind of hunch that you've always had, I'm sure really this is what the church ought to be. And what that hunch is, is actually absolutely what the Bible says. A church is an extended family of God. You see, you came to Jesus and you were born again. Now births happen in families. You became a child of God. We're talking family. Jesus is your big brother. We're talking family. God is our Father in heaven. We're talking family. All the other believers around are your brothers or your sisters, we're talking family. Paul talks about being a father to people in the Lord, we're talking family. So if I was to say, yeah, you've got the church universal throughout space and time, but let's talk local church, just a church. And I'm going to say, the New Testament, there are many pictures of a church in the New Testament. Jesus, well, the Bible will use pictures that tell us something, but they're not literal. The church is likened to a flock of sheep. If any of you think you are literally a sheep, would you bah now? The Bible talks about the church being 
a field. Now, if you think you were literally a sheaf of corn, would you wave gently in the wind for a few minutes, please? All these are pictures that are wonderful, but they're not literal, because if you take them too far, you're right up this morning. <coughs> sheep are mindless. You're not meant to be mindless. The early church fathers made people mindless, but you weren't supposed to be mindless. So all these pictures can only be taken so far because they are pictures. They are analogies. They are similes. But there's one picture in the New Testament that is not a picture. It is literal. And it's the reference to the church as the household or family of God. Because we are literally brothers and sisters. So therefore, a church is a little extended family of God. Would it therefore surprise us to discover in the Bible that when churches came together, there was a blueprint. This blueprint was given to the apostles by Jesus. The apostles revealed it to others and they plant churches according to the blueprint. Now, when we came over uh, to America on Tuesday, we went to Atlanta first, we came on a plane. Now, this plane consisted of certain things. It had a fuselage in which we sat. It had somewhere for a pilot. It had wings. It had tail fins, and it had motive power. And it flew all the way across the Atlantic. Now, let me tell you something. That is not a way to design an aeroplane. It is the way to design an aeroplane. Because if any of those things had been missing, we wouldn't be here now. We might be at the bottom of the Atlantic, but we wouldn't be here. Because you design something to do the job you design it to do. So if you want a plane to fly, you give it wings. If you want a fish to swim, you give it fins and gills. Now then, what did the apostles want churches to be? Little extended families of God. So how did they design them? Like institutions? When a group of believers came together on the Lord's Day, they met in someone's house. They spent that day together, sharing together, building each other up. Teaching each other. Encouraging each other. Sharing difficulties with each other. Trying to learn more about what it means to be a family. They would worship their father in heaven. They would worship Jesus, their older brother. And then they would have a meal together. Does that sound like a family gathering? Well, yeah. Because that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Now, what did the early church fathers do? What they basically did is they introduced the idea of services with one person leading. They threw the meal out. And when they'd done all that, they moved into special buildings and they put pews in and you spent the whole time sitting looking at someone six feet above correction. Doing it all for you. Now, look, that is not just not family... That's the opposite of family. Can you imagine a family gathering that did that? You know, they file into this building they hire every Sunday. They put chairs out in rows. Dad goes and stands up the front, directs the whole thing. Everyone does exactly what he says. There's no chance for anyone to share anything. And then after it, they pack up and go home because they're also hungry. Uh, I would call that a dysfunctional family. And we've been for 1900 years a dysfunctional church. I'm not saying we're not. We haven't been churches, but we're dysfunctional. We're not doing what church was designed to do. So the whole point is, given that Jesus and the apostles taught that a church was family, does it come as any surprise at all that when we look at the apostolic blueprint, what do we have? Family. And if you mess with it, you end up with dysfunctional family. That's what we've done. And that's why so many believers in churches, do you know what they're desperately trying to do? They're trying to have church in spite of church. Yeah? yeah sure. Now I'm saying, don't have church in spite of church. Just be church. Just start again. Do it. It's so easy. Wow. I'll tell you, we've been doing it in England. If we can do it, you can do it. Believe me. And of course, one of the things implicit in all this 
is obviously that they met in their homes. And a Dr. Colin J. Hamer was the Tyndale houseman at Cambridge and a writing in a Lion handbook, The History of Christianity, again published by Lion, in a section on beginnings and an article entitled Archaeological Light on Earliest Christianity and uh, the 1988 edition on page 58, he says this. The earliest Christians had no special buildings, but met in private houses, as mentioned in several places of the New Testament. So there you have it. I'm telling you a very simple thing. If you want to be a biblical church, this is what you need to do. You need to gather on the Lord's Day in someone's home. You need to make sure that there's no hierarchy. In time, you'll recognise elders, the elder brothers, but they're not big leaders, they're just one of the guys. You'll meet and you'll just kind of hang out. There'll just be a time for completely open sharing and worship. Each one has. You'll be looking for the Lord to move through the whole body. No services, nothing like that. And then you'll have a meal together. There'll be a loaf there. There'll be a bottle of wine or a cup of juice, however you want to do it. And you'll have this meal together. And that bread and that juice represents the thing you all eat in common, the thing you all drink in common. And that will be a celebration of two things. Well, three things. Firstly, it will be a celebration that Jesus is there. He's the guest of honour. It'll be a celebration as you look back to know that he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be part of the family. And it's looking forward to a day when Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that gathering, every believer throughout space and time, the whole church universal will be present. Only at that meal, Jesus will eat and drink with us literally and physically. Now think about it, the Lord's Supper. You have the Passover, meal number one. You have the Last Supper, when Jesus was at a Passover meal, it was the Last Supper and he said, this is the first of your church love feasts, meal number two. And it was a meal, just as the Passover was. We know that when Jesus comes back, there'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's going to be a big banquet, a big meal. So what's the third one, the one in the middle, after the Last Supper, before the coming back of the Lord and the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's a meal as well. They're all meals. Because you speak to any Jew, and they'll say, how can you have fellowship if you're not eating together? That's totally biblical. So, in a sense, I've given you a rough blueprint, the, I would say, irreducible minimums, for a group of believers to call themselves a church according to the apostolic blueprint. And I have shown you where all the changes came from, the early church fathers and all the stuff that came in. And what we've done is I've just lit the fuse. In the next talk, the dynamite will go off. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.